good morning. Get my uh, my jewelry in order here. Uh, my name's Mike Traben. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Fellowship Church. I want to add my welcome to that of Pastor Mike Stroh this morning. If you're a guest with us this morning, especially, we're so grateful that you're here with us today. Well, August is a, is a big birthday month in my family. Um, actually, the whole summer, really. Most of us have a birthday. Um, I'm going to embarrass my father-in-law and wish him a happy birthday. Today is his 70th birthday. Um, so... I'm, I'm going to experience my own birthday this week. I, I use the term experience because I'm told by members of my family that I have a history of being in a mood on my birthday. <laughs> my mom loves to recount the story of, of my fourth birthday where my parents organized this large celebration inviting friends from the neighborhood. I think there were some animals and a clown involved. And the part that I'm never allowed to live down is that I spent the entirety of this party on the couch being a brat. Um, and so, apparently, on my birthday, I, I sort of subconsciously relived that. <laughs> but uh, birthdays mark another anniversary for me as well. Uh, eight years ago, shortly after my 50th birthday, I, I dutifully reported to the hospital for a colonoscopy, as most 50-year-olds do. And I received something out of that wholly unexpected, a blood cancer diagnosis. I was diagnosed with a form of leukemia called chronic lymphocytic leukemia. It's a, it's a chronic form of cancer, slow progressing. It's a fairly common among blood cancers. But the treatment protocol for CLL, as we call it, it varies depending on a number of factors that bear in each case. But for almost all people who experience CLL, part of that treatment approach is something that's termed watching and waiting. And that's the image I want to present for you this morning, this image of watching and waiting. In, in the case of CLL, it involves closely monitoring the patient's condition until some form of treatment is necessary, because as many of you who have experienced cancer know that, that a lot of these treatments are, are very harsh on the body. Now, one aspect of this watch and wait protocol is that it, it can be mentally and emotionally challenging. There's a lot of room for optimism and hope in the treatment of cancer today. There have been incredible strides. Sorry, I... In my own case, just in eight years alone, the, the way that treatments have changed have been miraculous. I, there's a lot of room for hope and optimism, but there's also a lot of ambiguity, right? There's a lot of factors at play when we are dealing with issues that involve our health, not just blood cancer, heart disease, any other number of things. And like the ambiguity regarding the future for those who live with disease, there's, there's an element of ambiguity to our Christian experience as well. Saved by faith through grace, we are not today what we were before we invited Jesus into our hearts and into our lives. And yet we are not yet what we shall be, the scriptures tell us. The law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament promised Israel a savior, a savior for Israel and the whole world, the scriptures tell us. 
And the Israelites, they watched and waited for their Messiah. And that anointed one, the Christ, is Jesus. And the very people he came to save, those who had watched and waited for so long, they misread the signs. They miscalculated the time. And they had him put to death. They crucified their Messiah. Now, the story of Israel, the Old Testament story, it's, it is the gospel. The history of Israel is an important facet of the kingdom gospel. But the people of Israel are also an illustration for us that Israel crucified their Savior should be a warning to us that we are capable of the same things. We can misread the signs. We can speculate about timing. And yet when we do, we we fail to give proper attention to who and to what saves us. We can look to the wrong people as our saviors. And we can classify the wrong people as our enemies. So friends, there's, there's, there's an ambiguity to the treatment of disease of what physically ails us. And there's a ambiguity in the Christian life. But there's some absolute certainty as well. As there's optimism and hope in the treatment of what physically ails us, there's certainty and hope for what spiritually ails us. Christ the Son of God, part of the Godhead, the Holy Trinity. Christ, he put on flesh and he came to dwell in the very world that he created. And he experienced suffering and death. The scriptures, Isaiah, the prophet says, he's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. But rising from the grave, he's proclaimed victory over sin and death. And one day he's coming back to restore all things. We heard it prophesied in our call to worship. We heard part of it in our scripture passage this morning, what we're looking at in this sermon. All of creation groans. The whole created order groans as if in birth pangs. We're all going to die of something. You and I, friends, there's certainty in that. Yet part of the experience of being a faithful disciple is is experiencing the joy and the blessing that God makes available to us in this present life. But watching and waiting, as I've indicated, it's not comfortable or easy. So the question is, how do we appropriately respond to to and, and navigate this already, but not yet, that we experience in this Christian life. You see, our human proclivity is to shuttle along a continuum that ranges between two extremes, hyperactivity on one end and complacency and ambivalence on the other. And it's not too many people who are entrenched in those extremes, but you and I can, can move along that continuum. Because our human nature craves certainty. We either work really hard to find it, or we give up trying to find it and become complacent 
and ambivalent. Our human nature craves certainty and God has given us certainty. All throughout the scriptures, God's very words tell us his plan, tell us what he's doing, tell us what has happened, tell us what's going to come. His promises, friends, are sure and true. But like the disciples, like Israel, we, as modern day disciples, we can lose focus. We suffer from fatigue and doubt. And so the questions that tend to rattle around in our human minds about Jesus and when is he coming back and how does this all end? Those are the same questions the disciples had. When does it end? What are the signs? How will we know? Well, as followers of Christ, how do we appropriately watch and wait as Jesus has exhorted his followers to do, as we heard in our passage this morning? How do we do this as faithful and obedient members of the body of Christ? Well, I think Jesus is giving us the fundamental answer here in Matthew chapter 24. And so we're going to look at some truths and some warnings and some applications. I like acronyms, so the acronym's TWA. We're going to fly right through this. I'm here all day, people. Uh, Would would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Well, Father, you are gracious and loving and good that, that you don't leave us in the dark, Lord. You've told us the essential things that we need to know. There's great mystery about who you are and what you're doing, but Lord, you've told us the essentials of of what to do and what to observe and how to live our lives. Father, would you superintend the words that come out of my mouth this morning? Would you open our hearts and our minds that we would be transformed by your words and by your spirit? And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we are continuing in our series on Matthew's gospel. And our passage today is part of a fifth major teaching section of his gospel. There's five sections of the gospel. They sort of parallel the Pentateuch, the five books. Um, and this is the, the fifth major teaching that Jesus is, is giving his disciples. They've had three very action-packed days in Jerusalem thus far. A triumphal entry on Sunday being hailed as the arriving Messiah. Jesus cleansing the temple of its commercial activity on Monday. And then on Tuesday, confrontation, as we heard last week with the Jewish religious leaders and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, on Tuesday. His disciples can see that the religious leaders in Jerusalem, they're out to get Jesus and to try and to silence him. And by late Tuesday afternoon, Jesus and disciple, his disciples have left the temple and they're headed back to Bethany, which is their base of operations, if you were, in this visit. It's where they spend the evenings in someone's home. And verse number one of chapter 24 sets the scene for us. The disciples walking back, they've, they're coming up on the Mount of Olives and they're able to look back at the temple and marvel at the buildings and the beauty of it and its construction. And they say, look at this. Look at these buildings. Look at these stones as if to say, it's incredible that something this beautiful has been built here. 
And Jesus, ever the rabbi, seizes this. He uses this as a teachable moment for them. And he, he urgently turns his attention to preparing his disciples for some events that are to come. Namely, the destruction of this beautiful building that they're admiring as a sign of judgment upon the nation of Israel for rejecting their Messiah. And he's also foreshadowing or seeking to prepare them for the troubles that they will experience in the interval before his return in glory and triumph, as we heard about this morning in Joel 2. This section of Jesus' teaching is prophecy, which we're tempted to read as some secret code to be deciphered. We look at passages in Daniel and in Revelation and in Matthew, and we're trying to fit it all together. How do we make it fit neatly so I'm certain of what it's saying? It's prophecy, but it's not a, a secret code, if you will. It's Some things are hidden, but the purpose of prophecy is, is not to give us history written in some future tense, but to, but like a, a preview of a film, it gives us a coming attraction of something that can lift our hearts in expectation. This prophesied return of the Lord should be exciting to you and I, should give us hope. But the other side of this same coin of prophecy is it could be like hazard warning lights on a motorway. Its purpose being to warn us. Well, some of you might find some disappointment in my message this morning. Aside from my, my periodic lame attempts to be funny, which I think have already passed, I'm, I, I'm no more able to unravel the code for us this morning than, than those who've preceded me for thousands of years. Jesus' discourse to his disciples here is, is not intended to give them a, a detailed picture of the future. It's meant to center them and us on what is most true and what is most important. He's foretelling an event that is certain to occur and the signs that will precede it. And he's doing this in order to lift up our hearts and expectancy so that we make ourselves ready for what is to come, both the exciting and the uplifting, the consummation of the age, Jesus returning and making all things new again, but also to prepare us for all the troubles that we're sure to experience in between. He's centering them on the primary truth that he's coming back. And that's truth number one, friend. Christ is coming back. In verse number three of chapter 24, the disciples ask for two pieces of information. They say, when will all this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the consummation of the age? Now, you might have noticed in your Bible reading of the Gospels, there's not really been much of any teaching up to this point about his return that's been recorded. But but the fact that the disciples know to ask this question reveals that Jesus had previously, along the way, been teaching his disciples that he was coming back. Much of what Jesus taught his disciples and others, we don't find distinctly recorded in the Gospels. But Matthew and Matthew's record of this discourse does nothing to encourage detailed 
millennial expectations of speculation or talk about the rapture or all these various facets of, of different views of the end times, all secondary matters of importance to our faith, I want to emphasize. Jesus and Matthew recording this steadily fixes our eyes on the king who is one day coming back to be crowned. Jesus' second coming, it's the central point of this chapter. And it's the central point of my sermon. Jesus is coming back to reign over all of creation and to settle the future destiny of all people. And that, friends, is good news. That's the good news. Christ came. He was put to death. He rose from the grave and he's coming back. This is what we look forward to. This is what sustains us in the midst of all that we experience in this life. Christ is coming back. And his final coming, though, as we read in this chapter, will be preceded by signs. The fall of Jerusalem, the spread of the gospel, the cooling of love in the church, chaos and lawlessness in society. And Jesus tells us, though, in the midst of all that, the vindication of his words, all factors that precede the end. In verses 6 through 13, Jesus uses this imagery of birth pangs. To convey a suffering that's that's common to all disciples as we await the return of Jesus and the end of the age. Wars and rumors of wars, famines and earthquakes and tribulations, persecution of Christians, betrayals of one another. All of these things, Jesus says, they're birth pangs foretelling what's to come. And yet... He says in verses 13 and 14, the word will endure and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout all the world. In beginning to answer their question in verse 4, he really starts with a warning and it's really the central warning of this whole chapter. He says, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and lead many astray. It's hard for us to imagine those who've professed a faith in Jesus Christ to be suddenly led astray by somebody who says, I'm Christ, I'm the Messiah. But I think some people might be led astray by those who make that extravagant and blasphemous claim. But others might be susceptible to more subtle forms of being led astray. And what do these look like? It looks like bad theology, Deceptive philosophy. We are led astray by popular culture. We can become so entrenched in fighting political battles that we lose the focus on what it is that Jesus has called us to do as his disciples. We fall prey to them, friends, when we allow them to shift our focus or our preoccupation on anything other than Christ and what it is that he's called us to do. We have to walk by the Spirit in in obedient dependence and not be preoccupied with these other things that distract and can lead us astray. You see, the point of the signs that Jesus is laying out here for his disciples is, is not to signal 
a specific day or a specific hour. He's not laying out some, you know, pirate's uh, map saying, hey, if you piece all this together, you'll figure it out. That's not what he's saying. He's, he's laying out these signs to indicate to those who will properly understand and interpret them that, that they will gain from that the certain knowledge that they are living in the last days. And friends, we are living in the last days. In 2022, we're living in the very same last days that the disciples began to live in when Jesus ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father. We're closer to the end than they are, to be sure. But we are living in the last days. Christ is coming back, and we've never been closer to the end. That's what you and I need to understand. Our second truth is that Christ's return will come at an unpredictable day and time. He says in verse 27, the coming of the kingdom can be predicted as as little as you and I are able to predict where lightning is going to strike next. Anybody ever meet anyone who could predict where lightning was going to strike? I mean, I haven't. So it seems pretty clear to me that I'm not going to spend my time trying to figure it out. He says in verses 36 and 39, he says, Only God the Father knows the day and the hour. Jesus, a fully participating member of the Holy Trinity, indistinguishable from the Father and the Spirit, Jesus, in his capacity as the Son, wearing flesh, says, only God the Father knows. Jesus doesn't know when he's coming back. The angels don't know when they're coming back. John Nelson Darby doesn't know. C.I. Schofield doesn't know. Harold Camping definitely does not know. These are prominent Christian leaders in history who predicted when Jesus is coming back. Harold Camping, unfortunately, did it two or three times. Nobody knows, friends. So the main thrust of Matthew's collection of Jesus' teaching here is, is really not about helping us figure out when. It's about aligning our priorities. And what are those priorities? It's a, it's a steady endurance of hardship. It's a balanced wisdom in seeking to read the signs of the times. He, God doesn't want us to be unwise. He doesn't want us at the far end of the spectrum to be completely complacent and ambivalent. He wants us to know what's going on, but he's saying, don't lose your focus. Your priority is a watchfulness so that when he returns, he will not find us idle or abusing our privilege. He'll find us at work doing the will of our heavenly father. He doesn't plan to give a timetable. Jesus can't give a timetable according to his own words. His focus is on you and I and his disciples having the right attitude and character that will guide our discipleship for the days and the years that lie ahead for you and I in this life and the generations that may follow Lord willing. In verses 42 and 44, Jesus exhorts us to stay awake and to be ready. 
This imagery of being awake, it's, it's spiritual alertness to be aware of what's going on around us. Not the signs of the times, but where is God at work in your sphere of influence and how can you and I join him in that work as faithful and obedient disciples? So the warning Jesus is giving us is, is do not speculate. I named some human names earlier, but I, it was interesting. If you go on Wikipedia and you, uh, you know, search end time predictions, since 500 AD, there have been more than 50 prominent people who have predicted the second coming of Jesus. The millennial waypoints of, you know, 1000 AD in the year 2000, those, those are really interesting to people, even religious people. The Pope, 1,500 years ago, predicted when Jesus was going to return. But Jesus is telling us, do not speculate. But right, it's our human nature to desire answers to questions, to to want a clear course of action. Tell me what to do. Just clearly tell me what to do. I'm going to do it. That's why fundamentalism is so has so many adherents. Because people just want to be told what to do and then they get told the wrong things to do and they're led astray. As I said before, we we want this clear course of action. In the world of chronic lymphocytic leukemia, there are some patients who, who don't want to watch and wait, I'm told. I'm not a doctor. I'm just a patient. Right? They don't like watching wait because you just told me I have cancer. You've got to do something about it now. Some, something. It's no different for our spiritual lives, friends. As we wait, enduring hardships and serving God and others, our, our confidence ebbs and flows. And the lies we can begin to believe from time to time, they, they can take many forms. I've already mentioned Jesus is saying, do not be deceived. Christ's return, we can begin to believe, might be dependent on things that we do. In the church, we think, oh, I've got to evangelize. As soon as we reach the last lost person on the earth, Jesus will come back. And so that's our motive, rather than just being obedient to, to making disciples of all people and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. We think that we can somehow manipulate God into coming back sooner rather than later, in, on our timeline. And at the other end of this spectrum, we might think, you know, it's just all so hard, I can't figure it out, I, I'm not doing anything, or... I, I just don't think it's going to happen. So there's really no sense of urgency to be obedient. We can focus so much on reading the signs, as it were, that we don't stay on the road that Jesus has laid before us. Just as a point of illustration, my family and I, speaking of the road, uh, my family and I are getting ready to take an extended road trip we do that as a family of six in a motorhome. It, it creates a great deal of anxiety and stress for me, much to my family's dismay, mostly my wife. It, her dismay is well-earned. 
Um, I, I try to manage every potential risk that could befall this 25-year-old vehicle that we're driving up the road in, right? I, I don't feel like I fear many things, but literally being stranded on the side of the road, I've said this before, I'll say it again, my biggest life's fear, right? You're just at the mercy of whoever wants to try and help or do you harm. Um, so I'm always trying to plan for every eventuality, and, and it, it's robbing me of my joy, it's robbing my family of our joy. I, I can get so caught up in trying to predict and avoid or circumvent every potential thing that can arise that I, that I lose the ability to enjoy what I'm doing. The trip doesn't feel like a vacation. It just feels like a giant, as we say in the Marine Corps, a stress ex, a stress exercise. It just wears you out. I was sharing this yesterday uh, my brother in Christ, Tony Lovio, came to my house to help me change the oil on this big diesel motor and, and to provide uh, moral support and encouragement should I screw it up. And after he had left, I was cleaning up and a neighbor drove by and, and he was saying, man, you know, I was telling my wife, I just wish we had done this with our kids. And I said, man, you know, I'll tell you though, it's stressful. And I tell him this and he says, uh, he goes, you know, you just need to make it part of the adventure. And I thought, man, what a word for me. Just take it as it comes. If it happens, you just make that part of the adventure. You roll with it. You figure it out. You may have to come home, but that's part of the adventure. My wife says the same thing. And so, friends, we've got to make it part of the adventure, this uncertainty that we exist in, this tribulation that we experience, this Trouble of these present days. You see, Christ's return and the restoration of all things can, can seem so distant that we're either hyper-vigilant or on the other end of the extreme, totally ambivalent. And so truth number three is, is that our call is to be faithful and wise in the waiting and the watching. Jesus tells us not to be tired or complacent. In the chapter that follows our chapter this morning, in chapter 25, the first 30 verses, Jesus is giving two parables to his disciples to illustrate the two kinds of people. Those who watch and wait appropriately with a state of readiness and alertness and those who don't. I invite you to read them sometime this week. But if we believe Jesus is coming, and he is, He's coming suddenly, he's coming unexpectedly, and he's coming decisively to judge and to rule. If we believe these things, then how are we to respond with our lives? What, what does being alert and ready look like for us as disciples? I want to give you four applications. I didn't dream these up out of my head. They're from a, a gentleman who wrote a book on biblical prophecy, Dr. Mark Hitchcock. He's a Dallas seminary professor, but, but they struck me as just so Perfectly summing up how we as disciples are to live. He says, first, you've got to keep your head clear. These are all H's, by the way. Keep your head clear. Keep your heart warm. Keep your home open and keep your hands busy. Keep your head clear. How do we keep our heads clear? We, we read the scriptures and we pray. We ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us what it is that God wants us to understand about him and the world around us. The best way to 
be able to determine what's a counterfeit, to not be led what astray, is to know what the real thing looks like. And you know you learn what the real thing looks like by studying the real thing, friends. By abiding in Christ and his word, by by having an intimate relationship with God through prayer, by being in community with other Christians and encouraging one another as the day is near, Paul says. Keep your head clear. Abide in Christ. Be in community. Heed the warnings. Avoid the pitfalls of fixating on signs or speculating or date setting. And then he says to keep your heart warm. That is to love God and to love others, right? On on this hangs all of the law and the prophets, Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, that, that is our job. As we expectantly await Christ's certain return, our job is to love God and others. And part of the way we do that is to keep our home open, to to show hospitality to strangers. Yes, in your little literal home, perhaps, but in the other places, the other spheres of influence where you live your life, this church, be hospitable. Show hospitality to strangers in your home, in your workplace, in your place of business, in the grocery store, at 7-Eleven. On the freeway. And then he says to keep your hands busy. Which is to use your gifts in service to the Lord and others. God has gifted all of us in various ways. The beauty of the body of Christ is this diversity of gifts and experience. That we all bring something unique. And we pull all that together as the body. And we we put it into action in the service of God and others. And 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 we are living out the gospel. We are the face and the hands and the feet and the heart of Jesus Christ on earth. In verses 45 to 51, the end of the passage that was read to you this morning, Jesus invites his hearers to reflect on their, their own state of readiness. And he's really talking about this exhortation for us to keep our hands busy. And he he makes a contrast between two slaves, a, a faithful and a wise slave and a, and a wicked slave. The, the wise slave, the one who is responsible and faithful to his or her tasks. They're doing what the master expects of them. They're living into their responsibilities. They're doing what they should do. And in contrast is the wicked slave who who reasons that his master is so far off and it'll take so long for him to come back that he has time not to be alert, not to be ready. And the end of the passage has some really strong words about what the master will do to those servants. And we might want to gloss over it, but I tell you, friends, that that we're wise to, to look at that and say, Where am I this way? Because we all have good days and bad days. Lord knows I do. Well, tomorrow is is a big day for me too. Tomorrow is is the end of a course of treatment for 
One, one phase of my treatment for chronic lymphocytic leukemia, I've been for the last six months having monthly infusions. Or it's a monoclonal antibody that goes into my blood that um, marks various cells for my deficient immune system to destroy, but its, its purpose is to prolong my body's response to this oral medication that I take every day until it stops working. And it's a big day because I've been through a lot of this before, as many of you in this room have, and it it always sucks to sit in that chair and have somebody put a needle in your arm and put things into your body. And so I'm looking forward to um, to being done with that tomorrow. But I also want to tell you that that with every cycle of treatment that I receive, I, I can begin to to over-focus on the fact that it's just that much closer for me to the day when my body may not respond to treatment. You see, after tomorrow, I'm back into watching and waiting. And that often feels um, scary to me. You see, you and I can do or attempt to do everything that we can do to avoid our eventual end. Or to figure out the number of days that we have left until we leave this life or, Lord willing, Jesus returns before that. Or or we can realize that we live among all of the signs of the end, as Jesus is telling us, that, that with every passing day of our lives, we are... We are closer either to the end of our days or the end of the age. Christ is coming back. No one knows the day or the hour on this earth. And our call is to be faithful and wise in the watching and the waiting. And so with with these truths and warnings and applications held out before us, may we walk in the certain hope we have in Christ, sustained and comforted by his presence through the Spirit as we faithfully live and serve until his return. The earliest creed of the church is Christ is risen. Or excuse me, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Would you pray with me? Well, Almighty God, you are the ancient of days to whom the Son of Man has ascended, where he sits at your right hand and reigns until he will come again to judge the living and the dead and to establish his kingdom forever. And Lord, until that time, so many of us suffer physically and spiritually. And for all of those in this room and in our city and in this world who suffer from disease and sickness, Lord, We pray for their healing and for their comfort. But above all, Lord, that they would know your perfect presence, that that you see them in the midst of their suffering, that your promise is never to leave them or forsake them, and that your ultimate promise, their ultimate hope is that you're coming back. You're going to resurrect dead and broken bodies and you're going to give us glorified bodies and we're going to live and reign with you in eternity. 
and a renewed heaven and earth. And so, Lord, help us to stand in the certain assurance that you're coming back. Help us to recognize that we cannot predict the when or the how. And that we could just focus on doing what it is that you've invited us to join you to do, where you've placed us to do it. Lord, change our hearts. When we're prone to doubt, when we find discouragement in trying to figure out everything that's going on in this chaotic and challenging world where, where love feels like it's cooling, where the church feels like it's fragmenting, Help us to remember, Lord, that your word tells us that your church endures. Your very words tell us, God, that your word and your church endure. That the gates of hell, or humankind even, will not prevail. And that ultimately, we will spend our days in eternity with you. So help us, Lord. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us